Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Given how long we've been talking about race in America, you'd think that by now we'd at least get the language right. But maybe that's the very problem. We're still talking about it precisely because we've been having the wrong discussion. Almost as long as anyone can remember, we've sincerely directed our efforts to eradicating racism by talking about a colorblind society. The goal has been to make race and difference disappear, essentially homogenizing the culture. When that hasn't worked, we've perceived that we've failed. The response to that has been a kind of bifurcated multiculturalism and identity politics that has moved everyone into their own corners. None of it has really helped our understanding. In an important new work, my guest, Professor Jennifer Harvey, gives us a new way to view race, justice, and culture. If not through a radically different lens, than at least one with a new prescription. Jennifer Harvey is a writer, speaker, and a professor at Drake University. She's the author of numerous books and a longtime contributor to NPR, The New York Times, and The Huffington Post. It is my pleasure to welcome Jennifer Harvey here to talk about her new book, Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America. Jennifer Harvey, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. I want to talk first about this idea and, and kind of how we sort of fell into this, thinking that, that teaching and encouraging colorblindness was somehow the solution to our racial problems. Yeah, so I think in part, and we need to be clear that usually it's white Americans who think that's the solution. Because um, communities of color have been saying for a long time, this is not the solution. See my racial identity. But I think in part, it has come for white Americans from a sometimes well-intentioned place where we think drawing on part of the message of the civil rights movement that we're not supposed to judge people um, by their skin, but rather by the content of their character. But what we haven't realized is that that's a misappropriation, a misuse of what was um, what that way of thinking meant. And so colorblindness has sent this message that somehow we're not supposed to notice differences that are actually important to people who manifest those differences. And also, it often sends a message to our kids without us knowing that, oh, you know what, don't notice that, don't hold that difference against them. And so it actually, without our realizing it, sometimes sends actually quite a negative message about darker-skinned peoples, African-American people, Latino people. And so it's actually really dangerous. And also unrealistic, which is the part that never gets talked about. Absolutely. Yeah, unless you're, you have an eye impairment that literally enables you to not see color, we do see color. It's just not neurologically the case that we don't see it. And so it's actually kind of a, a social lie that is very confusing to children. Talk a little bit about what your, your research tells you and what you've seen in terms of the way children initially understand race. How do they perceive it early on before the, it, it has gone through the filter of, of adults in society? Yeah, so we know from numerous studies that children notice physical differences, including skin tone differences. And scientists have demonstrated that over and over again. And what we're learning and what study after study has said is that children, even before they have language, we know they're observing the world, they're drawing in information, and they're draw making conclusions and interpretations about what they see. And so we've seen repeatedly that three-year-olds and four-year-olds already have a notion of race 
from experiences they've seen in the world, and they have started to internalize negative, um, inferior notions about African-American people and Latino people, and false superior notions about white people. And actually, this is true for all children, not just white children. All kids internalize these messages by the ages of three and four. And they do that by literally just seeing what's going on in the world and making conclusions about um, how things are because they are living in a society where we are structured in unjust ways. And so they ascribe that to negative and positive um, characteristics of people groups. And how does that evolve in young people as they grow up and as they're more exposed to the culture in general and pop culture in particular? Yeah. So we know that in families of color, um, especially studies of African-American families, that parents and elders and caregivers will typically or often actively teach against those messages and so start to teach children that, um, you know, that African-Americans have an important and, and legacy, important legacy that they should be proud of and try and sort of work against those racist messages that our social arena gives children. But we also know that in white families, white adults do not talk about race with their kids, not in explicit ways. And so as kids, white children grow up, they not only continue to make assumptions about communities of color um, because of that silence in white families or that colorblindness that we're using, but they also actually learn very early that they're not supposed to talk about race with the adults in their lives. They realize that there's a taboo about it because, in part, they're seeing race all the time. They're seeing the impact of racial difference, but they're hearing from adults, this stuff doesn't matter. And so they actually actively know that they aren't supposed to talk about it. And that becomes really a big problem as white youth grow up because they aren't getting supportive accurate, meaningful conversations with anti-racist committed adults about the meaning of race in their own lives. And that creates all kinds of problems for them as they grow up. And these problems end up being played out oftentimes against their peers of color. And you talk about your own experience and your own perceptions growing up. Yes. I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and I was my first six years of elementary school was actively part of the busing system as they were trying to desegregate schools in Denver. And I was in, you know, my first three years a racial minority demographically. And my one day in first grade, a friend of mine who was white, we were outside in the hallway and she said, Hey, Jenny, we need to start a white girls club. And I think I looked a little confused because she said, you know, because we're only one of six white girls in this class. And I kind of looked down and realized I had this conscious moment of recognizing, oh, yeah, you know, okay, she's right, I'm white. (laughs) Um, But a white teacher happened to be walking by, and um, she turned, it was a beloved teacher, but she turned and she snapped us off and she just said, girls, I don't ever want to hear you talking like that again. And while I appreciate that what she was worried about is that something bad was happening, Instead of partnering with us and inviting us into dialogue and conversation and exploring that and helping redirect us, she really made me afraid to ever go near talking about I didn't know what we'd done wrong. I didn't know, but I knew something was loaded around this notion of difference. And so it really scared me away for a long time, even though I was in classrooms with lots and lots of black children, and those were my friends. And so that was really, that's really unfortunate. It delayed my own ability for years to meaningfully talk about race and difference and ultimately anti-racism. It's also reflective of what you talk about in the book is kind of this larger <laughs> paradox that we are so racially diverse in this country in so many respects, and yet racial tensions are, are higher and higher. Yes, yes. 
you know, it would be one thing if we were just racially diverse and pluralist. Um, if we, if that's what we simply were, we could basically teach our children, teach ourselves, teach our students, celebrate differences, embrace differences. We need to learn about our, each other's differences and go on our merry way. And we do need to do that, but we have this complicated problem, and that is we're not only diverse. We are also structured in a white racial hierarchy. We are living in a society that is structured by white racism, and the social data shows this to be the case on every measure. And so just celebrating diversity isn't enough because it leaves this really severe reality that our young people know is there, that we're also kind of uh, structurally at odds with one another. White folks benefit from policies, practices, and legacies of wealth that communities of color do not. And that requires a different set of tools if we want to be a racially just nation and if we want to raise a generation of anti-racist white children, we've got to figure out how we um, engage them with that problem. But that problem is a more sophisticated and nuanced one. How do children perceive that reality? Well, it really depends, but um, I can say a little bit about my own children that I know my own children, partly because they hear things at school or partly because I've made sure when I've heard things that I share it with them and ask them questions about what would you do about this? So, for example, when a child on a playground has engaged in racist behavior, um, you know, we can set aside whether or not a, a five- or six-year-old white kid knows they're being racist, the impact of racist behavior on an African-American child is still profound. If maybe that child's skin color is being made fun of or they're being excluded in their play, and this happens everywhere. It just it happens everywhere. And so white kids, um, one of the things parents can do and should do is talk with their children about those kinds of racist encounters and get them early on board and age-appropriate ways. They're seeing this on the playground, talking with them about that behavior, describing what that behavior is, using the language of racism, and also inviting their moral imagination to grow by saying, I want you to think about what would you do if you saw this happen, or what did you do, or what do you wish you had done differently? And as we do that, that also gives us a a way to begin to talk with our children about the larger, more structural and systemic issues. And so, ironically enough, one of the early times in my own child's life when I shared a story about a black member of our family who had been treated as a five-year-old in a racist way by a white peer, the first thing she said is, oh, wait a second, Mama, is that sort of like what happened during slavery? And she sort of made the connection in this very four-year-old way between that one-on-one, five-year-old racist behavior and these longer legacies. And so our kids actually can do much more sophisticated things than we sometimes give them credit for. Is there a certain age that, that you see where this kicks in, where this understanding changes, morphs at a certain point? Well, we know that um, infants are absorbing the difference and absorbing what they and trying to make sense out of what they see in terms of the meaning that differences are given in society. And so I think it is the case that from birth 
on, we can and should be talking about difference with our kids. And so um, there's really no time that's too early to start using and engaging in the language of difference and race with our children, even if their their conceptual notion of it doesn't quite understand what it is, just like we do with everything. You know, I'll say to my kids, look, you need to eat broccoli because it has vitamins. Well, they don't know what a vitamin is, but by the time they're 8, 10, 12, they're going to have a concept of vitamins. And so we need to just get that language on board. We need to be um, making sure they're engaging diverse media. We need to be getting them into desegregated spaces in their lives and also having conversations with them about their experience of those spaces and that diverse media. There's no time that's too young, Um, even though, of course, we also, you know, are mindful of how and when and in what language we use to introduce the sort of larger, more violent Fright, more frightening dimensions of racism, we do need to expose white kids to those realities. And of course, we're also going to do that in ways that are attentive to their four and five-year-old brains. The other part of this is the geographic difference and where kids grow up and the difference that that makes. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, that is significant. Um, and so sometimes I'll be asked, you know, well, what do I do? I live in a part of the state that's very rural and there's only white people there. And one of the things that I think is really Um, possible and important is that we still can make active choices about making sure that there's lots of diverse um, media books, conversations happening in our kids' lives wherever we live. And if we do a good job with that, at a certain point, our our kids are going to start to say, you know, I see all these African-American people in storybooks, but I haven't haven't seen, how come there's no African-American people where we live? And when we get questions like that as parents, that's information that our children are at another developmental um, stage of readiness. And if it was me in that moment, I start to say, well, let's talk about the history of this part of our state and start to teach our kids about the history of why it is we're living in a place that is so white. This land, nowhere on this land was initially white land. And so all of our young people need to learn those histories and learn local histories just like regularly. African-American parents are teaching their youth those histories. I am confident Native communities are teaching their kids their local histories and their histories. And so we can do that with white children, and we really need to. And where is the nexus between this and understanding the social justice component of this? Well, the social justice component, from my perspective, is that we... It's urgent, I believe, especially, I mean, it's been urgent for for decades in this nation, but if we look right now at what's going on in our national racial climate and politically, it's urgent that we raise a generation of white youth who understand what racism is, who understand, for example, that, you know, trotting out an African-American person as a friend does not make you not racist, who are not only understand what structural racism is, but who also see themselves as having a stake in creating a racially just society and feel like they have a skill set and a set of tools to do that. And so that's the social justice nexus for me, is that we can't just teach children, white children, oh, we just value equality, we love everybody no matter what they are like, and expect them to be ready and able to take their peers seriously as young adults when their peers share with them stories of their those sort of racist incidents that, that um, regularly happen in their lives. If white youth don't know earlier that those things happen, they won't believe their, um, their young professional peers when they share those stories, and they sh- certainly won't be ready to stand and, and be allies with them 
um, and support them when those things happen. And so we just, it's critical to our future as a society that we raise white children who are much more ready, able, and willing, desiring to create a truly pluralist, just nation. Talk a little bit about the role of teachers, the role of schools in the classroom. So our children spend so many hours in schools, and um, teachers are incredible and work very, very hard, and they have lots of constraints on them. Um, So I say this with empathy and compassion, but one of the challenges is that the number of hours our kids spend in schools in educational settings where we aren't often giving them the full truth of our U.S. um, history ends up creating really um, big gaps in our children's knowledge. So, for example, I've written before about uh, my child um, coming home and, you know, celebrating George Washington over and over and over and over. She was just loving up on George Washington and not having been taught also that he also had enslaved African people. And the reason I was so disturbed by this was not only that I want her to have a truthful um, and morally complicated understanding of U.S. history, one that is accurate, but I also know that her black friends are being taught about George Washington's relationship with with African Americans, and I want her to be able to be part of those conversations, too. And so when our schools don't give our children the full story and invite them to wrestle with, as citizens, the meaning of the stories in our lives today, we're really doing all of our kids a disservice. And in terms of the future consequences of, you know, raising civic leaders who are ready to lead a truly just pluralist nation, we are really um, doing ourselves a disservice. We, we touched on this a little before in terms of geography and, and, and what kids learn, but it also relates to education and, and the way in which our, our neighborhoods today have become so bifurcated and communities have become so bifurcated. Talk a little about that. So, you know, our communities are bifurcated and our neighborhoods are bifurcated because of segregation policies and redlining and housing loans that were given to some people, mostly white folks, and um, who that were not not granted to African Americans in particular after World War II. And so our, you know, we literally all of us are living with the legacies of active governmental policy that's segregated our housing and that many, many white Americans said, okay, and took advantage of and went ahead and got that loan and not only moved out to suburbs, for example, into white enclaves, but then also benefited from the accumulated wealth that came through that um, access to buying a home. And so, you know, the larger lesson here for me is that as a white American, there is nothing that is easy about desegregating my life. I have to, um, because my own family legacies have participated in those various ways that our society has been segregated, I have to actively choose against segregation. Um, And I have to do it all the time because our cities even, even where there's lots of white folks and people of color, our cities are segregated. Mm -hmm. And so there's not going to be anything accidental about living in and with very multiracial communities. We have to actually choose to desegregate um, our lives, whether it's housing, schooling, where we spend time, what you know, how we volunteer, where we, what church we go to, we have to choose against segregation, or it will just continue to have us leading bifurcated, segregated lives. Of course, what's difficult is making those choices when it runs headlong up against public policy, which is pushing in the other direction. Absolutely, 
it's yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very difficult for human beings to choose against their own self-interest and to decide that, you know, grabbing the apple that's being dangled right in front of your face when it's being held five feet above the you know, arm reach of another community isn't worth grabbing. And that is a really difficult moral problem. Is there any reason to be optimistic, do you think? You know, I don't know. I don't know if I feel optimistic, but I do feel hopeful. And and the difference is important to me because even though I know that it sort of runs counter to lots of human self-interest to really throw one's lot in with a community that is suffering when yours is being insulated, I do see lots of cross-racial resistance. I see lots of spaces where um, people of color are continuing, as they always have, to organize for justice, to mobilize for justice, and where, you know, perhaps more in this current political climate, more white Americans are saying, oh my gosh, we really do have this crisis, and I'm going to have some things I need to figure out how to do. And so I, I'm actively in spaces where people are working for justice in multiracial ways and um, saying, we're going to we're going to create locally the kind of community we want to live in, even though we're sort of running against this larger, really difficult national current. And so, you know, I don't think we're going to, it's not like I sort of am naive and think we're going to get there tomorrow, but I think that there is a moral awakening happening in some parts of the country. And I'm in touch with folks for whom that is happening. And that gives me deep hope because whether or not we win next week, this is the work of my life, and it's liberating, life-giving work to be in spaces where, in multiracial ways, people are saying, you know what, we want to fight for the kind of community and create the kind of community that we actually want our kids to grow up in. And so I feel hope about that because I think it's happening all over the country. Jennifer Harvey, her book is Raising White Kids, Bringing Up Children in a Racially Unjust America. It's just out in paperback. Jennifer, I thank you so much for spending time with us. It's been a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Thank you.